Pinto Jr. is six feet six. He's projected to be a middle of the order power hitting type capable of manning either corner outfield with a rocket arm. Oh, one other thing. He's 16 years old and we have no idea what he's going to be. Good morning to you. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Pirates. It comes your way bright and early every weekday. If you're into football and or hockey, I also offer up daily shots of Steelers and Penguins where you found this. The Pirates formally announced their international signing class yesterday. 19 players in total headlined by Blanco, who's considered to be by most rankings either at the edge of your top 10 or right there at the periphery of it. MLB Pipeline and Baseball America both had him at number 11. That's interesting. It's intriguing. It's also... Uh, it, it's really, it's, it's not much of anything. There is so much that can go so wrong over such a long period of time and the amount of development that goes into a player, the amount of cultural assimilation that goes into bringing the player from the island to Bradenton and learning not just a new language, but a new way of life and a new way of communicating with people around them. And how do you handle money? Because Blanco just got a check for $900,000 and he and his family now have more money than any of them ever could have dreamed. And let's not pretend that isn't a big variable too. I mentioned somewhat parenthetically on yesterday's episode that I've made a couple of expeditions in covering the Pirates' work in Latin America. One of those was to the Dominican, and it was an experience I'll never forget. This was back when I was with the Post-Gazette, ended up doing a three-part series uh, for the newspaper on that, seeing the conditions that these players, not only that they live in, but they, they play in. Uh, one of the fields that I saw in the Dominican, uh, in the southern part of the country, there was a, a trash pile out in what should be left field. And if the ball goes into that trash pile, it's you know considered a home run. These were the kinds of things that you saw all over. The, the fields were really rough. Um, you know, an infield bouncer was liable to come up and get somebody in the Adam's apple. The equipment, my goodness, the equipment was about as crude as it gets. Uh, and at the same time, there was such passion and such joy for the game. And even the uniforms, the, the jerseys and t-shirts and caps that they got that were mostly knockoffs. And, and you know what I'm talking about. The kind of stuff that you get in a strip district, you know, the pink Yankees hats, stuff like that. And the gloves patched together, uh, you know, a, one bat being shared by a team. This is the kind of thing that it, it makes you, on one hand, maybe look back at American history and 
try to picture what it was like when everyone here loved baseball as much as they do there. On the other hand, accept that a lot of the reason that these kids are playing baseball is because they do see it as a way off the island, as a way that they won't be trying to fight a lifelong uphill battle toward making a living. This portion of Daily Shot of Pirates is brought to you by our friends at North Shore Tavern that's directly across Federal Street from PNC Park. It's home of Steak on a Stone, an eating experience, underscoring the word experience. The steak is brought to you partially cooked on an 800-degree stone, and you do the rest. It's a ton of fun, it's a great meal, and it's a baseball atmosphere like no other in Pittsburgh. North Shore Tavern, right across Federal Street from PNC Park. My other expedition came a handful of years later. I went to Western Mexico to the city, and it is a city of Mazatlan, to tail along with Rene Gallo whenever he was the Pirates Latin American scouting director for what had basically been a long-since mission accomplished in securing the rights to Luis Heredia, who was one of the top pitching prospects. And, you know, here's Luis described himself as a six-pitch pitcher. <laughs> Kid's 16 years old. A six-pitch pitcher who could do anything at any level, and he had a real swagger about him. And he, like Blanco, was also 6'6". And when you look at him, when the scouts look at him, one of the challenges, one of the many, many challenges that they have is that they try to project what the body type will be. Will they end up not being able to carry their weight? Do they have enough of a frame that they can grow into it? Very similar discussion that I remember having with uh, Gallo and others regarding Miguel Sano way back when Miguel was still on the island. Miguel had all the traits of someone who would become heavy by the time he got to the majors, and he did. He did. Go take a look at him. <laughs> dude can hit a baseball, but the, the dude does not have an easy time keeping the pounds off either. Heredia turned out to be a different kind of case. Once he got his bonus of $2 million, that was the end. That was the end of Luis. He had, oh, how do I say this without getting a little too deep into some of what I saw? He had, a, a let's just say he had a, a parent who was incredibly uh, possessive and controlling and wouldn't allow him to have a penny of this money once he got it. And that bothered him and that upset him. And by the time he did graduate from the Dominican Summer League and made it up to Bradenton, you know, he wanted to be one of the boys. He wanted to have a little bit of an extra swag because he was a international bonus baby. And, you know, to some extent, you know how that is. You want to show your, your, your friends, your pals, your peers that you're a little bit special. And that didn't happen. Finally, somehow, some way, I didn't hear this part of the story as to how it happened, but he got his 
hands on some of that money, and he started spending it, and he became the king of Manatee County in Florida with his super fantastic new car and everything else. And guess what else happened along the way? Yeah, he stopped taking pitching seriously. He thought pitching was just something that you were just born to do. You actually hear a lot of that. You hear a lot of that in Latin America. That slider came from God. Uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. Believe it or not, that actually was a phrase that someone used. That was in the Dominican, not in Mexico. This kid went from six pitches to zero pitches in terms of what he could use to get people out. And then from there, couldn't even command a four-seam fastball. Total disintegration of a kid who had the entire toolkit plus makeup, frame, brain, velocity, spin, you name it. He had absolutely everything. But it was cultural type things, personal things, family things that ended up messing it up for him. Look, I'm not predicting any of this for Blanco or for any of these guys. And I know for a fact that the processes that are in place now, not just with the Pirates, but with teams across Major League Baseball to try to help assimilate these players into not just their system of playing baseball, but also culturally has changed so much. You know, Francisco Liriano retired this week. And Frankie's the guy that I'll always look to as the harbinger of uh, how much things have changed. Frankie told me, this was a few years ago in Bradenton, the story about how when he came up with the Twins, and you'll remember he was like a sensation by the time he got to Minneapolis. But when he came up into their system, that he had a hard time eating sometimes because he'd wake up in the middle of the night, he'd come downstairs at the Twins Complex in Fort Myers and he'd look at the vending machine and he didn't know how to work it. And he was way too proud to go and ask someone, hey, what do I do here? Or how do I order a pizza? And he'd be legitimately hungry. And that made him depressed and irritated and a lot of other things. These are things that have gotten better in baseball. I'm sure that they can still get better. But there's a long, long way, my point today, between seeing Henry Blanco Jr. and he can do this and that, between that and PNC Park. When we come back, just one question. one question for today comes from Steve Rui who asks will the Pirates try to be good at some point there's a lot of different ways that one can interpret the asking of this question I'm going to choose to interpret it the way most people would presume and that's something extremely cynical about the state of the franchise about Bob Nutting and whatever else here and I'm going to treat the question as such in responding that I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't have any reason to doubt the intentions of Ben Charrington, Steve Sanders, and the front office. They strike me and they conduct themselves as legitimately, extraordinarily competitive baseball people. I definitely don't have a reason to doubt Derek Shelton, the people at field level, and obviously the players. But ultimately, your organization is defined by what you've got at the very top. And I'll continue to insist that because of Bob Nutting's failure to react in an appropriate way following the 2015 season, he still has lots to prove in that regard. I'm finding a nice way to phrase that. There's a lot of misperceptions about what happened after 2015. There's an idea that the Pirates should have uh, broken the bank to sign Jay Happ or tried to, I don't know, talk A.J. Burnett out of retiring or whatever else here. This one really wasn't about money. This wasn't about the Pirates cutting payroll from 2015 to 2016 because they actually didn't. They didn't. What they did, and the they in this case is Neil Huntington and Kyle Stark, was trade Neil Walker for John Neese. How quickly we forget and we've changed the narrative. Neil Walker for John Neese, the Pirates actually added salary with that. That was a horrific move. And from there, those guys thought it would be a good idea to fill these holes in the rotation by trying to convert Juan Nicasio from relief to starting pitching. He came from the Dodgers. Do you remember that? Remember that? Nobody talks about that one either. Nicasio was never a starter, and he got thrown into the rotation. And this was their answer. This was their answer for losing A.J. Burnett and Jay Happ. That's baseball incompetence of a spectacular variety. So why do I pin that on the owner? Because he's the only one that was over their heads. I don't count Frank Coonley. Frank Coonley pretended he was a baseball guy, just a poser. This was where the owner comes in and says, hang on a second. You're doing what? What is this? What is this? Why is Neil Walker being traded anyway? Can you run that one past me? And if he had done a little bit of homework, he would have found out that Walker and Stark had some personal issues, didn't like each other. And the brass at the time thought Walker was just a little bit too outspoken and whatever else. Pittsburgh kid, you know. But that's, that's a bigger part of the responsibility that a franchise owner has then payroll is. I know all we ever talk about is payroll, payroll, payroll. And if Nutting took the payroll tomorrow to $200 million, we'd all be like, hey, hey, whoa, look, Bob Nutting, he finally cares. What shows me that you care as an owner, that you're invested, that you're paying attention, is when you see an action like a few years ago, when Mario Lemieux and Ron Burkle cleaned house, fired their general manager, fired the coach. They didn't like what was going on. They did their own digging. 
They did their own investigating and they made changes. What tells me that an owner is invested is when Art Rooney did something similar a few years back to help preserve Ben Roethlisberger's career by keeping him around in Pittsburgh a few more years by getting a coordinator in Todd Haley who would help make sure that Ben would stay upright more. Say what you want about Haley and whatever else, but it worked. Ben just finished his career at 18 full NFL seasons. Oh, and you want another example? Yeah. Don't overthink it. Nutting firing everybody two and a half years ago. That was way more powerful in my eyes and meaningful than a payroll increase here or there. But he didn't do it after 2015. He didn't step in the way he should have and said, listen, what's next? What do we need to do to win a championship here? This team just won 98 games. What do we need to do to win 100 or to avoid this damned wild card game? What do we need to do? If that sort of thing happened at any point that winter, I'm not familiar with it. I didn't hear about it. Doesn't mean it didn't. Just means that I didn't hear about it. So I'm kind of going a ways here to answer your question, Steve. But when we see more indications of that, that's when you'll know they're being serious. And it won't have to do entirely, or maybe even all that much, with payroll. I appreciate the question. I appreciate everybody listening to Daily Shot of Pirates. We'll do another one tomorrow. <laughs>